Tonight we're going to be in Ephesians. If you want to turn there to 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4. If you remember the church in Ephesus, great as the goddess Diana, the whole riot situation with Paul, well, he's writing back to them while in prison to uh, encourage them to continue on with what the Lord's done in their lives. And, uh, you know, you get born again, you get excited for the Lord, you get saved, and you walk with Him. Um, and then the honeymoon passes, and there's effort. Um, there's study, there's diligence, there's, um, there's good days and bad days, and uh, knowing how to get back into the Word of God after you've had those bad days, knowing how to continue to pray or to even show up at church after bad days. It takes some work. Um, and Paul uses lots of metaphors throughout as he writes. He likens it to a marriage. He likens it to a race, a fight even, a, a war. Um, and uh, Paul understands that. He's a good coach. He's a good general, depending on how you look at him or depending on which metaphor he's using. And so when he writes to the church of Ephesus, he's not writing them off. He's not saying, well, you, you, I thought you were going to be good, but you're not, which I can do sometimes, and maybe we can do sometimes with people. Well, I guess they're just not going to. He decides to write them a letter, you know, to encourage them. Um, and he calls it like he sees it. He doesn't pull any punches. He's not there to rub their back, you know. I know you had a bad day, honey. Nothing like that. It's just flat out reminding them in the first three chapters what Christ has done for them, what we have in Christ, what we've earned, what we've gained by having Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Not, not focusing on what he's taken away from us or uh, the, the life I used to have, you know, old Egypt, which flows with milk and honey, we say sometimes, like the nation of Israel did. It doesn't flow with milk and honey. It was a disaster. That's why we cried out to Jesus for help, is because it wasn't flowing with milk and honey. We maybe thought it was going to be that way, but it didn't. And Paul knows that. And he says, you've got to remember what you've gained. If, you know, Ephesus, you've got to know. And so he spends these first three chapters telling them about what we have in Christ. And of course, that encourages us. He, you know, God knew that. He didn't know that. He had no idea he was going to be the New Testament author. You know? It was just a letter he wrote to some brothers and sisters that he loved dearly. And, wanted their own. and God says, yeah, that's great. I did that. I like the way you wrote that. That's by my Holy Spirit. It's now Scripture. And so we get to read it 2,000 years later to encourage us today that maybe we started off great and um, maybe not everything turned out like we thought it was going to after we got born again. Maybe everything wasn't roses and um, it wasn't easier. It wasn't paradise. It wasn't heaven on earth because um, we're surrounded by sin and we sin. And so it's not, it's not meant for that. It's meant for us to help us through that. That's not ever going to end until we die. Then paradise, then heaven. Paul understood that. He's a good coach. He's got, a, he's got some runners that are down. He's got some fighters that are in their corner and they've been beat. And he knows what to say to them. Give up. You can't win. It's horrible. You may as well quit. What was all this for? No. He tells them, don't you remember what this was for? Don't you remember all the training? Don't you understand the prize that awaits us here? Get back up and run. Run worthy of the calling. 
So chapter 3 is our last chapter, and of course we're going to 4, which is the beginning of the next section, which is now we know what Christ has done for us. Chapter 4 says, now here's how we ought to live because we know these first three chapters. Okay, So we'll finish that up tonight. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how uh, that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Now, I've got to break this up because these are classic Paul run-on sentences. I just have to. And parenthetical statements inside of these run-on sentences, which makes it even more confusing for me when I read. So for my sake, that this or this. Now, can you hear me? Is it dead? There I am. All right. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, I'm in prison for you. I got beat up for you. I got a riot started for you. You know, they had to save me for you. It's for you Gentiles. And Paul was a Jew. So he's going to lean towards that direction. He's going to let them know you're not second-class citizens. Remember what the Jews had done to these guys. They'd come into the church of Ephesus, a bunch of Gentiles, and said, that's great that you know Jesus, but now you all got to get circumcised and be Jewish. you got to join us. Join or die kind of thing. And it's like, no. Um, Paul says, you don't have to do that. That's not required. What's happened to you is a circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual thing that's happened to you. It's nothing to do with the physical. You can't make it out of physical things. And so he says, I'm in prison for you guys. So understand that, that I'm for you, and these things I've written are for you. The next thing he says is, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. In other words, I've been given the responsibility to, to dispense grace to Gentiles. The dispensation of grace. Paul, your job, although he wanted his job to be the dispensation of grace to the Jews, remember how often he tries that and it doesn't work. He gets the job of dispensating Christ's grace to the Gentiles. He wants them to know how much they're loved. A group of people that didn't know they could be loved by this God. A group of people that didn't know they were chosen. And he gets to be that herald, that messenger, to share that with them. I've been given that, he says. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. And he's going to describe that mystery. We want to all know what the mystery is. There's a mystery. Ooh, you know. What's the mystery? Here's his parenthetical statement. Uh, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Here's the mystery. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. No one's ever heard this before. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Here it is, colon. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. Not of a different body. We don't understand that. But if you were in the church of Ephesus, you'd understand that because the Jews have come in and says, you're the second body. We're the first body. We're the guys that Jesus really came to save, and you're kind of the leftover has-beens. You know? You're the second body. Paul says, no. He's, he's made us, made you, Gentiles, fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. You're equal. Gentile would never even think about saying that they were equal to Jews back then. It would be unheard of to say that. I'm equal to you. You are not. I'm like a double whammy. You're like just, you know, you're a tag-along. 
kind of thing. That's how they saw the people. That's how they saw the Gentiles. That's why the outer court of the Gentiles, they had grown up that way as Jews. The Jews got to worship really close to God in the temple. And then there was this outer court for the Gentiles, whoever, who, who wanted to follow like the Jews, who really wanted to be Jews when they grew up. And they could worship out here. And then they didn't even think that much of that, so they made that into a big selling marketplace right there. And that's where Jesus flipped all the tables. No, this place was for them to draw near. And so it's just built into these guys to think of Gentiles as kind of second class new, you know. I don't want to touch them. Paul says, no, you're the same. You're equal. Partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister or servant according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. He's a servant to that. I like that. Ministers are servants. Um, I park, sometimes I park right there where the orange car is, where you guys parked. Because you've got to get the middle row started. Otherwise, nobody ever parks in the middle row. So you just got to get it started. And so sometimes I'll come in on a Sunday, I see people parking clear down by the other parking lot. I'm like, oh, so I started. And somebody walked by me and says, yeah, that ought to be your spot. I don't, was that you that said, somebody said that to me. I said, yeah, you guys ought to put up a big sign, pastor's parking spot. Isn't that a great example of a servant by the front door? So he doesn't have to walk that far. I'm going to brag a little bit on my son JC and other guys as well, Aaron and all the guys. All the guys that are servants here that serve you people, um, they park clear, clear, clear over there whether anybody's here or not. They just do that. JC parks clear at the bottom of the far parking lot. On those, at, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday morning as he's coming through, he parks clear down there and just walks all the way up the hill because it's built into these guys. Aaron parks clear over on the other side of the well over there. Um, that's just where these guys do. It's just built into these guys. They don't want to take the best spots. They want to leave that for the people that might be visiting or people that just can't walk that far. Just people in general, anybody other than them. They understand what being a minister means. It's not a place of prominence, although there should be respect there, but there, it's a place of servanthood, okay? And so Paul says it. I've been given this servant mission according to the gift of the grace of God. It's a gift for me to serve and share this grace by the power of, of his Holy Spirit. Verse 8, to me, who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, some take that word unsearchable and think that, well, we just best not even try because it's unsearchable. It's not possible. No, it's not what he means. I think you should always search out the riches of Christ. I just don't think you're ever going to get to the end of it, is the idea, obviously. I mean, I think most of us pick up on that. He's just saying how, how great he is. It's unsearchable. And yet, we still look into it. I mean, we still enjoy it. The riches of Christ are amazing. Of course, there's lots of ways to look at it. All I see is a heavenly father who's given us so much. So much that I don't need it all. But he doesn't care. He doesn't give me my needs. He gives me my wants as well. He just blesses abundantly. And these unsearchable riches, partially they're unsearchable because we can't fathom it yet. I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to be like, these are the riches of Christ. We think about it sometimes. We joke about owning Saturn and Mars is mine and the whole universe is ours. And uh, I'm going to take Hawaii when it comes to judgment time. That's going to be my zone or whatever. So we make cracks like that, but we really don't comprehend how, what it means to be a son or a daughter of the Lord, of God. 
that he's adopted us into his family and that we have this. And so that's what he means by these unsearchable riches. But that's what I'm here to preach. I want to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. My message and our message as Christians is to tell the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. We serve them. I want you to know how much we have in Christ, how much you can have in Christ if you believe on him. The amazing peace that you can't buy with money, that you can't get from things or attaining power or position. Peace doesn't come that way. Peace comes from Christ. And that's invaluable. And I get the job, Paul says, of preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here's what I also get to do. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Remember what the mystery is before, that they get to be a part of the body which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Hidden from who? Hidden from everybody. This is going to be a big point here in a minute. The angels don't understand it. Satan never understood it. Nobody gets this. It's all been hidden until now. And it's going to show how big of a responsibility and how big of a role we have. And it's not a responsibility like, oh man, great, heavy Wednesday night Bible study. What am I supposed to do on Thursday? Tell everybody about the unsearchable riches of Christ, I guess. You know, it's not meant to be like that. We just simply live it, and we tell people who want to hear it. It's a very simple job. It's a very simple ministry or servanthood. But this has to be revealed. We reveal it. The church is the only ones that can. He's going to say that here. It created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Have you ever read that before? They don't understand what's going on. I get this really self-centered view of my walk with Jesus, that everything around me is meant for me. You people are here for me. I don't think that. But it's hard not to walk around thinking that the angels are my guardians, because we're taught that we have an angel that is with us. Okay, they're for us. And there's a lot of things that are for us. There's an entire race of beings that we haven't even met yet for the most part. These angels. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them as far as we can calculate from the Scriptures. An entire race of beings that, that were here long before us and we don't know when they came. All we have is Genesis 1-1 and that starts us. But something was around way before them or in the middle of verses 1 and 2 or however you want to work it in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word and so on. All these things were created. But these folks are watching us and learning about what God is like through His love for us, through His grace for us, through His mercy for us. And I don't think of my job that way as a Christian. I'm just trying to get paid on Friday and trying to get up on Monday morning and try to get to work and try to maintain a marriage or figure out what my kids are thinking when they're not talking. I mean, that's my biggest problem. I don't think about this big thing God is doing with us as a body of believers. This has been the manifold wisdom of God is now being shown to the entire universe, everything created by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is your glory. Don't think that I'm in prison is like a sign that God doesn't approve of my message or me. It's for you that I'm in prison. Don't lose heart. Don't go back. Continue to show the entire universe 
the manifold wisdom of God by walking in that grace and mercy that he showed you. I got a lot of theories, and they're all probably garbage, so I won't share them with you because you don't need theories from me. You need God's word. But I think about this now a little bit. I think it's okay to reason and think about this thing. What, what's, the, what's God doing? Why are we here for 100 years or so? Some people less, 30 years, 10 years, doesn't, whenever they died. It doesn't make any difference. Why are we on this earth? Why not just be born in heaven? Because that's been done already. Angels have never known a time without seeing God's face. They've never known a time. They've never had to walk by faith. An angel has never had to walk by faith. From what we understand from Scripture, they've always been in the presence of God. He made them, and there they are, and there's Dad. And they fly around him, and they say how great he is. And one-third of them, somewhere along the line, decided to follow Satan, who was a created being, who was a free moral agent in heaven. This is the greatest thing against Calvinism ever. But... And he decided to walk away from it made a decision to walk away from it. But he was a free moral agent in heaven and left and led a third of the angels with him as far as we understand from scriptures. So that happened before we were, born, before we were really made because in the garden, Adam and Eve, here comes the serpent and he's already deceiving. He's already trying to twist them and get them away from God. So we know that sin has already been found. Iniquity's already been found in Satan. And so he's done this. But we also know from Job that he still has access to heaven. So he hasn't been cast out yet. He still walks around up there whenever God calls him to and he talks with God. So he's still, he's still there, but he's in complete rebellion, but God still allows him there. Okay? These are things from Scripture. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not getting tinfoil hat on yet. But then I wonder, then he makes us. And the first thing that happens when he makes us and tells us not to do something, Satan shows up and tests us. He's showing something to everybody. I don't know what kind of conversations they had, and I don't want to even guess as to what kind of conversations angels have had with God. Well, yeah, sure, but nobody would choose to follow you if they'd never seen you before. Who knows what happened? But for some reason, he created us, and the manifold wisdom of God is being shown in those in the church who have believed on God by faith. And the angels are going, whoa. I mean, we got a third of the angels up here that can't walk with him, and they see him. These people, they've never even seen God, and yet they obey, and they worship, and they love him, and they follow his word. They're being taught something. They're being shown something. A couple scriptures, just to back up my tinfoil hat theory here. I don't think it's a theory. I think it's what we see here. I don't know exactly what's happening, but this is what we see. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 12. Let's go back to verse uh, 10. Sorry. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. The prophets didn't quite understand Jesus or what he was going to do. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in then in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Basically, we know he's coming, but we don't know when, so we're just trying to figure that out. The the prophets say that. Verse 12, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what they were prophesying about wasn't for their time, it was for our time. Okay, we've tracked that. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire 
to look into. It's our first little hint. Angels are looking into us. They're observing us intently. Yeah, there are guardian angels, but more often than not, they're like, this is amazing. They're in awe. The second scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It talks about women's head coverings, which most churches like to avoid talking about today, okay? Because it's kind of an odd subject. But there's something that's shown there, and that's why you need to study all the scriptures, because you miss stuff like this if you don't read everything, even if you don't think, I don't know, it's relevant for today. It is. It's always relevant. God's word's always relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It just is. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10 as he's talking about women, they need to wear their head coverings. And I don't see any women here with head coverings. I don't know what your problem is tonight. He says this, verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have the symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. Why do they care if women wear head coverings or not? And, and by the way, just so you, oh, are, I'm supposed to be wearing a head covering? No, no, no. Um, go on down, verse 16, just to get, you, get that out of your mind so we can go on. But if anyone seems to be contentious about this subject, basically we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So there you go, you're out. Now back to what he's talking about. Why do the angels care? Angels are amazed that, the, that, that you're, we're following the order that God had said because it's a picture for the angels to see, not only for us to understand, but it's for them to understand authority. Oh, look at that. And they're doing it and they're following it. It's an ama- I mean, it's a mystery still. But that's, as, that's as clear a vision as I could give you to it of it. But when we're reading it in Ephesians and he says that you, you can't skip stuff like that. You can't just go past that. It says God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. What exactly are we showing them, you know? And so Paul says, be very careful that you follow these rules and regs and do these things because the angels are watching these things. They're learning. I mean, we talk about that a lot. We have t-shirts that say, uh, um, you may be the only Bible you know, epistle that anybody ever reads. Your walk with Jesus is all they're ever going to see. And those are great, and that's true. You may be. Just by walking with Jesus, the only Bible that they ever read, okay? That's fine. There's a whole lot more readers out there than we know. There's a whole lot of things going on. And we don't need to know. He's shown us what we need to know. But he does give us glimpses into it and says things like this that makes me think my responsibility for walking with Jesus, walking worthy of the calling, as he's gone over these first three chapters with the intent of telling the Ephesians, Look, don't backslide. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to legalism. There's no way to get to heaven that way. Stick with the grace of God because at the end of verse chapter 3, we're here to show the principalities and powers of the universe what grace looks like. That's what we're here to do. And so we've got to walk that way. We've got to walk with forgiveness. We've got to walk with grace and mercy for other people as well as for ourselves. We have to walk that way. Because we're, we are, we are, we're the flannel graph of the Sunday school class. You don't know what a flannel graph is. That's how we show kids in class that, you know, we take flannel pieces, we put Jesus and Mary, and we show them the story on the flannel graph. Guys, we're it for the angels. They're watching this giant earth flannel graph, a grand Sunday school class for them going, wow, grace, mercy, forgiveness. They're seeing it all in us. 
in whom we have boldness, we have boldness in Jesus, and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation. So please don't lose heart. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's about to tell us why he prays. Here's why I pray. Here's what causes me to fall to my knees before my Father. Here's what I ask of him. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you. This is his prayer. He'd grant you and he'd grant me these things. According to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might or power through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he prays for. I pray that you find out the length, width, and depth of God's love for you. I pray that that strengthens you, and it will. And when you get that, when that's your mission, when that's what you search out, how much God loves you, then you're going to be, he says right there, Filled with all the fullness of God. I want to be filled with the fullness of God. I've often prayed, I want, to be, I want to be someone who knows God better than anybody's ever known God before. And I say that all the time because that's still my prayer to this day. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the Father better than Moses. I want to know him better than Abraham. I want to know him better than Adam. And I don't know if I can know that, but that is my goal and that's what I live for. I will know him as best as I can anyway as much as my little puny brain can comprehend, right? And that's Paul's prayer for all of us, that we'd know that. When you know that, when you start feeling that flood of God's love in your life, constantly, sinning or not, when you realize how much he loves you like a father, like there's really nothing you can do that can separate you from his love, there's nothing you can do that can separate you from him. There's nothing we can do It doesn't matter how bad you've ever been or how bad you were tonight, you're not separated from God's love. And you start dwelling on that. You start thinking on that. It begins to change you from the inside out. That's how I stop sinning. That's how I become a better son or a better mother. Or if not mother, better son or a better... uh, Whatever. (laughs) Let me take a drink here. That's how I become what what I want to be. It's when I experience my father's love. And that's how my kids are going to become what they want to be, is when they experience love for me. I mean, it goes right on down. That's how you raise kids. They, they should be drowning in our love, absolutely drowning in it, even when they blow it. Yeah, you blew it, you know. There's a car commercial, an insurance commercial. You probably saw it. I just saw it. I don't watch too much TV, so I just saw it. We were in a hotel room down in Kansas City, and he was, the boy comes in. He says, I just want you, and in, my parents are in bed. Have you seen that one? I just want you to know that I was driving through the drive-thru, and it's a very narrow drive-thru, and I hit something with the car, but I called our insurance agent already. And he says, we're fully covered, and, they're just like, and the mom's like this, reading. Three weeks without the car. Okay, thanks, bye, and he takes off, you know. Even in that funny little exchange, there was love. He knew he had to tell them because he loves them, because he respects them. I don't want to use this as a Bible study, but even in that secular commercial, they got it. We know and we become what God wants us to be as sons and daughters by experiencing and drowning in his love. It's a fact. We pickle in it. 
We may be cucumbers, but we soak ourselves in the love of Christ, and eventually we take in all that flavor. And the longer you sit there and the longer you marinate in that, the, more, the deeper it gets, right to the core. And Paul knows that. He says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in doctrine. Nope. I want you to be rooted and grounded in being right, in arguments, in wisdom, in knowledge. I want you to be rooted and grounded in none of that. Not, nothing wrong with that, but be rooted and grounded. Your roots need to be in love. Your roots have to be in that love. And that's what he prays for. For this reason, I love that, for this reason. You can almost hear him say it. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. You know, just thank you, Paul, for praying. You know, Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, he's excited and he's not going to close. Typical pastor. Chapter 4, now he switches gear. Because you need to be rooted and grounded in love, because of all these things that Christ has done for you and how the riches you have in him, now here. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. And I think you can do chapters 4, 5, and 6 when you understand 1, 2, and 3. I can walk worthy of the calling. I know that it says that my righteousness is as filthy rags, but not in Christ. Not in Christ. In my own strength, in my own ability to make myself look good or better, it is righteousness, it is gross. It's not befitting a son or daughter of God. But when I'm doing it because of how much God loves me, it's not filthy rags at all. It's fruit. It's fruit. And here's how we do it. Here's how you walk worthy of the calling, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now he's saying one, because he's not saying there's a Gentile God and a Jewish God. Now I want to clarify that because I recently got a request from a pastor to begin to pray that the Democrats and the Republicans would just have peace with one another. And I wanted to write him back. These guys are fundamentally and diametrically opposed with philosophy that is, they cannot meld together. And so I don't pray for peace between one philosophy and another philosophy because the, what they're praying for, what they're asking for is, can't we all just, and bear, bear with me, can't we all just compromise enough that we're all happy. Let's back up to who we are, and let me walk us all through this so we understand why I don't pray for things like that, and I don't think we should. I am a servant. We all saw that. We're all ministers. We're servants of a king. And my king has thoughts, ideas, plans, and truth, and I'm here to represent my king. Now, if somebody comes against me and says, can't we just compromise on this? What you're asking me to do for peace sake is so that we don't fight and argue is to compromise what God has called me to do as a servant of a king. I, I don't get to do that. That's asking him to compromise. God doesn't compromise. He doesn't bend on these things. 
Peace for peace sake is not what he's ever called us to. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm here to make a very clear division. And we're seeing that in our country right now. We're seeing a very clear division. This is right and this is wrong. And we are really finding out how the other side feels about us for the first time. It's all been hidden. It's all been secret. It's all been nicey-nice until there's opposition to them. I need to be careful about that. I don't pray for peace. I want to win the war. I want people to get saved. I don't make compromises with Satan. I don't make compromises with these things because I represent a king that doesn't make compromises. He, he has won. He's victorious. And so I endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's got to be by the Holy Spirit. I don't make peace with people not under the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to gain souls. I think it's interesting that the narrative now has been, until you conservatives, Christians, right-wingers, whatever they want to call us, find the perfect candidate, just let us run things for now. I don't think so. No. We're not going to have you run unopposed just because we can't find someone who's perfect. Um... And I'll give you a good example of that, everyone in this room. God has never told us as Christians, until you're perfect, just keep your mouth shut. Until you're perfect, just sit still. Satan can do what he wants to do. Don't be, you know, and that is Satan's biggest lie. I don't mean to make the comparison too close, but I can't help it. It's the same words. Satan tells Christians, you can't preach the gospel. You can't share your faith because you're a sinner. His Mission is to tell you how guilty you are and how unperfect you are and how perfect, you know, you're no better than anybody else. You're just that our mission has never been to be perfect. Our mission has never been to be above everybody else. Our mission is to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be saved. We were disastrous train wrecks, every single one of us, and Christ came to save us. And I'm here to tell you he wants to save you. That's our message. But Satan would love to silence us by telling us that until you're perfect, keep your mouth shut. We're not called to that. And that's why with lowliness and gentleness, that's just humility, basically. With humility and with long-suffering, I bear with one another and I endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. All y'all, you know. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. You've been given a gift, the gift of grace. Everybody's been given that gift of grace. Now, this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. A little bit of doctrine for them to understand. What do you mean he descended? Yep, for three days he descended into hell and he led captivity captive. Three days later he rose from the dead and led captivity captive. And he can read that in Luke chapter 16. We don't have time for that tonight, I don't think. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, 
Luke 11, verse 29, he discusses that. I'm going to have to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And he described that to us. And so Paul is reminding them. When he let captivity captive, he gave gifts to all men. Verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I've got to stop there because this is one of those longer sentences. Some of the gifts that God has given us in the church is to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That's one. It's not pastors and then teachers. It's pastor teachers is what it means. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. I'm doing that tonight. I'm fulfilling my calling. I'm not an evangelist. I've tried to be an evangelist. I do the work of an evangelist. I've talked about that. But I don't have much fruit when I'm an evangelist. But I am here to tell saved people and to get people saved if they, you know, if they hear. It's by the Holy Spirit anyway. I'm here to equip for the work of the ministry. And I do that every single Sunday and every single Wednesday, or I try to anyway. And anytime I'm ever asked, I do what God's called me to do. But it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Remember what ministry means? Service. It's to serve. This is just class. This is just strengthening. It's for the edifying of the body of Christ. The ministry's out there. Always has been. Sometimes the world comes here and we minister to them here, but the ministry's out there. And so this isn't, for, this isn't a self-help night. It's a self-building up night. It's an edifying night. It should encourage us. But like a coach... It should be like, now go out there and get them, boys, girls, sorry. Go get them, you know. It's like halftime. It's the pep talk. It's the thing. But it's minor compared to the effort and the training and the, everything that needs to go into winning the game, basically. And so that's my job. And Paul lays that out. There are some that have been called to these things for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's to build it up, not to tear it down. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, these offices and these callings are until Jesus comes, when we're all perfected. That we should no longer, and here's why he's given us these gifts, this is why we're here to do this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine or teaching by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. It's to protect us. It's to gain knowledge. It's to understand God's word, to understand his heart. So when we hear weird things, we recognize them as weird things. That's why they're there. There is cunning out there. There is craftiness. There is deceitful plotting. There are rabbit trails like you wouldn't believe out there. There are shiny objects to distract us from what God's called us to do, which is to dispense grace and mercy to this dying world. There are things all over the place that gets us off. We focus too much on that stuff. Be careful. Paul was focused in his ministry. He, 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 he's not wearing a tinfoil hat. He's not living in the desert. He doesn't, he's not storing up ammo. He goes in unarmed into riots and wins. Nothing wrong with storing up some ammo for the range. Don't get me wrong, guys. But you're not going to survive with ammo. You're not going to do anything. Paul, the apostle, goes in with a robe on to a mob, and he wins. He starts churches that way. 
He's not distracted by the things and the shiny objects and his Christians. Oh, I'm so sorry, but we are just really, we're, we like bait. Little shiny spinners over here. And we squirrel, you know, we look at this. Next book, you know, how to win, how to influence friends and people and, and you know, a minute with God Bible study or, oh, just so many shiny objects out there. A very clear understanding. We need to marinate in God's love. We need to search out the riches of His grace and His mercy to find out the length, width, and depth of His love for us and to be grounded in that and then go share it with the world. That's what we're here to do. Tell them about Jesus and that it comes by no other way but Jesus. I mean, obviously. So Paul says these offices were given to us by Jesus Christ so that we're no longer children. I don't want to be a child. I want to be saved like a child. I want to have faith like a child, but I want to be I don't want to be ignorant like a child. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, we begin to grow ourselves and we begin to edify ourselves. I mean, he edifies us, obviously, as the head. That's where we get our information from. That's where we get our guidance from. Our coordination comes from the head, through the nervous system, by the Holy Spirit, so to speak. But then we begin to grow too, and we become more coordinated. We've got my grandson, Caleb, and what a joy to watch him move from crawling and screaming to running and playing tug-of-war with a dog. You know, he's, we, he comes over and plays with our little dog, and he's starting to tug-of-war with the dog now, you know, and keeping his balance and all. That's just part of it. It's just a great example of us as Christians. We start off crawling and kind of whining and, and, you know, someone's got to feed us constantly. And pretty soon, let me do it myself. I want to feed myself. We begin to eat on our own. And we're kind of messy when we eat. That's okay. We might spit it out a couple times. Pretty soon we get better and we begin to not just walk, but we begin to run. We become more coordinated. And that's what God is seeing in the body of Christ. The church is growing, becoming more coordinated with knowledge, with wisdom, being grounded in his love. And we begin to edify ourselves. Verse 17, this I say, therefore, to te- and testify uh, in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding being darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That's what studying the Bible does. It dispels ignorance. It gets rid of it. So we study the Word of God, so we're not ignorant anymore. I don't want to have to be ignorant. Well, I just don't understand Revelation, so I don't read it. Read it then. It's like saying, I don't know what 2 plus 3 is. I'm just not going to get that. Figure it out. Put your fingers up. What, you know, uh, 3, 5, 6, 5. It's 5. You know, and all of a sudden, I'm a little bit smarter. You know? If I don't get Revelation, you should read that more than any other book. Get it. You know? Learn it. He wants to be discovered. He wants us to know. He makes us dig a little bit sometimes, but the Word of God is for us to know. This is what... This is, what my, this is what it looks like. This is probably my fifth Bible now. And I just mark it up. You know, you're not supposed to write in the Bible. I do. I mark it up till I can't read In fact, one point, there's a hole. I can't read that part. So I've got like five words. I've got to guess at what it says there. Because I can't read it anymore. Because I want to know. And I don't study any other books. Dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to anything else. Just ask me about it. Hate studying. Hate reading. 
terrible reader. Sometimes you can see that on Sunday mornings. I'm like, but, the, but the, the, you know, you're like, oh, man, dude. I'm terrible at it, and I want, God wants you to know that. But for some reason, when I read this, I don't know. And I only read it not because I want to be smarter than everybody else. It's because I want to know him, because I love him. It's a love letter to me. I want to read between the lines. What do you mean that we're showing uh, you know, the, all creation about your love? What does that mean? You know. So I study. I want to dispel the ignorance, and I know I am. You know, I think that's the first thing when you walk lowliness. I know I'm ignorant, and so I need to study. And so I do, and God shows me little bits and pieces every time, as much as I can handle anyway. And he says, therefore, verse 17, I know I read it, I'm telling you this so that you don't walk like the Gentiles anymore in the futility of their minds. It's futile to walk like Gentiles, so stop walking like Gentiles. In other words, we have the ability and the power to not walk like that anymore. No more of this, I just can't seem to do it. You're making me, you're making me say it. Then is God lying or are you lying? Because God says you can stop. God says you're fully capable. God says in his word that you can stop walking like this. He's not going to ask us to do something we can't do. And so therefore, when he asks me that, that means I can. So when you tell me you can't, you're just saying you won't. I just say it out loud. I love my sin too much to quit. It's more attractive to me to do that than to read my Bible. I love slacking. I love being lazy. I like to eat unhindered, you know. Um, and all the other sins that we could talk about. And God says to us, stop. Paul says, just stop. Don't walk that way, he says. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. In other words, they've given up. They've quit. Don't give up, Christian. Don't give up. Don't give yourselves over to the uncleanness and greediness. It's, it's a battle, and it's a fight for sure. Battle and fight. I don't know how many diets I've been on. This is a minor example. I don't do well with diets. I do okay for a while, and then I quit, and then I get, you know, the scale goes the other direction. And, 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 you know, you get excited and I tell people about, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, because I just love to tell people about my failure and pending doom. Because then later on they say, I thought you, I thought you stopped doing that. Yeah, I did. I did. Now I'm, I'm back doing it again. And I've come to the conclusion, but at least I'm fighting. I'm still fighting, you know. And that's just a fleshy thing to talk about. It has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter what you weigh. It makes no difference at all. Please don't misunderstand me. But when it comes to spiritual things, I don't want to get to the place that I get to the place with something fleshy like a diet where I just say, I just can't do it anymore. I'm just going to give up. I saw an article on a lady that's trying to be the fattest woman that's ever lived. And her husband's helping her. And she's eating and eating and eating. She's trying to get past 600 and keep going. And, and I don't know what to say, except there's a, there's a serious, obviously, breakdown there. There's something that she's lacking. Because that's good, what she wants to be known for. And it doesn't matter what she weighs. What I'm more concerned with is her spirit, because the flesh is going to die. It makes no difference what she weighs. Her heart is broken. Something's wrong. She needs Christ. 
Not so that she can get thin. Nobody cares. I don't care if she's 1,200 pounds. That's not the point. She needs Christ. She needs Jesus. She needs to know she's fulfilled. She needs to know she's a daughter of God. She needs to know she's loved with an everlasting love so that her heart's right. And, and then be 600 pounds. It makes no difference. But being past feeling, don't give yourselves over to lewdness, all uncleanness and greediness. Verse 20, here's the switch, but you have not so learned. So in other words, he told us what not to do. Here's what he tells us to do. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, here's what you've been taught, that you put off concerning your formal conduct, former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is spiritually speaking. We put off the old man and we put on the new. That's something I have to wear. That's something I have to decide to do. We have to do. We're a new creation in Christ. So we resist. I see those bumper stickers now. This says resist. I know what they mean. But I'm like, amen. Let's resist the devil and he'll flee from us. That's not what they mean. They want to resist God and I'm not into that. But I'm, resist. I want to put up some resistance. You know, I love some of these, reading about some of these last battles where there's like three guys left of a whole company and they're surrounded by all their enemies and they've got a bunch of ammo and like three guns. I like those stories because they say, we're probably not going to see you tomorrow, but we won't have any ammo left by the time you get here because we're going to resist. And sometimes one of them makes it to tell us the story. You know, He gets out and with, held back an entire you know, company with just a platoon or something like that. These great stories. I want to resist. I want to resist my flesh. I want to put up resistance to my flesh, resistance to Satan. I want to resist the enemy. That's what we're called to. And then put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, therefore, here's what we do. Put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. Not just for yourself. I love that. Don't just work so that you can get off everybody else's paycheck, but work so that you can have something to give to someone who's poor, who needs it, who has a a need, you know, needs a sandwich, needs a help with an electric bill or whatever they may need, be one, because it's so much better to give. It's so much more encouraging because that's what our Father does. He gives to those in need. He's given to us. We're in need, and He wants us to have that same opportunity. We give to those in need, and He wants them to have that. So start working. Let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. So in other words, don't just not talk. That's kind of a Confucius philosophy. Confucius. Confucius, whatever his name is. He always had the mindset of just don't do anything bad, which he's right, but he missed the point. Christ came and says, now do good. Don't just not interact with the world. Interact with the world, but correctly, you know. Bring life to people. Don't just not be creepy and mean with your words, but build people up every opportunity you get a chance to do that. 
I'm a critical dad. I criticize my kids. But I try to balance it with about 10 times as much praise and love. I don't think any coach is a good coach that doesn't tell you that you need to course correct a little bit or you need to push a little harder. Or do, you know, you got to have that kind of coach, but a good coach will tell you all the things you're doing right as well. This is awesome. That looked great. That play, nice. Good head, good instinct on that. Now, huh. fourth quarter, what was that? Yeah, I know. So much easier to receive that way. Build people up. If you're constantly criticizing everybody in the church, why don't they shake my hand? How come this is like this? And just fold your arms and sit there and can't, and you're just a complainer. First of all, it's a miserable existence for you. But build people up. Encourage them. That it might impart grace to the hearers. That's how we impart this grace that we've been called to dispense by building people up. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, it grieves the Holy Spirit when we don't dispense grace by building people up. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, and there's that hole in the Bible that I can't read, be put, what is it, speaking what? Speaking away from you. Well, there's a hole here, I don't know. Away from you. Put it all away. Get rid of all that anger and clamor and evil speaking. With all malice. And then I've got be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He throws that in at the end. I want you to do all these things like Christ already did for you. you know, just a reminder. You've already received this. He's not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done. And he's not, ask, not asking you to do something that you can't do. He wants you to do it, and that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for all the riches that we have in Christ, in your Son. Um, and we, it's obviously unmerited and un, un, unearned. You just you bestowed it upon us as being adopted sons and daughters into your family, and we're so glad. Now, we've heard chapter 4, though, the beginning of the second half there. We know 5 and 6 are coming, of what we should be doing. Um, so, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we've been built up tonight. We've come in here, and you have encouraged us and, and shown us, but you've also been a good coach, a good father, and you've also showed us some things in our own hearts that maybe need to change, um, some corrections, some improvements, something to work on. And Lord, we receive that with gladness tonight, and we know that it's our job to now implement those things. Just telling us doesn't do any good. Now, Lord, help us to practice. Help us to work hard. Help us to condition, Lord so that we can do all these things. And we can obviously better represent you, Lord, by being like you. So thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his heart for the church in Ephesus and for your heart for us. It's obvious that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.